and uh yeah chapter seven sakai settlers let's go so um he's talking about the birth of the cio here i think the standard narrative about the birth of the cio is that it's the uh american working class emerging under depression conditions to finally be a class for itself sort of for the first time because the previous attempts were stuck in the collaboranism of the AFL, mm. AFL, right? And I think Sakai acknowledges that the CIO was a major step forward and I think he sees it very positively. But as the as the chapter goes on, he sees how it was captured in this settlerist new deal framework and i guess my big question for you as we read it is something that he seems to leave out which is that uh black people in the united states were very positive about the new deal as racist as it was in terms of puerto rico and asian americans and um domestic labor and and, uh yeah and and farm labor and even in terms of the, the way black workers their integration within the cio is he argues it's very overstated I'll let you comment on that. Uh, I think he is trying to cover over the very positive um, reception that African-Americans had towards this this period of unionization and the New Deal. Yeah, I mean, he's not wrong, as we said earlier, in pointing to the uh, to the New Deal and the CIO struggles and ultimately the way by the the mid 30s even the CIO had um, largely, not completely, uh, because there were communist-led um, unions uh, within it, uh, had largely become a um, state project, right? Had been a way to integrate uh, a militant um, and fighting working class, white and black, into um, the state system, essentially, into the imperial system of the United States, the way in which uh, there was a potential as, you know, he was critical of the IWW, but he did talk about their potential. If they had read Lenin, <laughs> I guess, uh, to overcome the sort of bounds of their, their demographic, demographic basis and their geographic basis and their conscious basis of consciousness in order to become something more than, you know, the failed attempt at industrial unionism, unionism that it was. The CIO uh, has promise for Sakai, um, but what undermines it is settlerism, right? And settlerism in this instance starts to be tied into very explicitly, and he began this with the um, Spanish-American War in previous chapters, um, settlerism becomes part of, or it is the wellspring of a larger project of shackling, first the... the um, the settlerized, the, the colonized people, the colonized nation is, um, is turned under and subjugated and oppressed and exploited in the United States. But by the 20th century, then the United States starts to spread this system throughout the globe with its imperial reach. So for Sakai, the victories of the CIO and the CIO and the union movement's integration into settlerism then becomes the class basis by which America will then, and the stability around which, uh, and prosperity around which, uh, for the average quote unquote settler worker, America will be able to dominate, uh, Europe, uh, in the Second World War and Asia. But then, as we're going to see, you know, the rest of the world as well in this sort of uni, unipolar American, uh, domination. So, the CIO for him, he doesn't deny the class struggle, but he talks about because of the settler aspects, because of this special, these special privileges 
uh, and because of the geographic reach of the United States and all of its resources and the fact that those resources had been expropriated from the native peoples and others, that a special bargain was made with the American ruling cl uh, working class, the settlers, and this was instantiated within the New Deal, the basis for empire. That's basically his thesis. Uh, and then from there, in the rest of Chapter 7, um, he typically, in typical Sakai fashion then, uh, starts to look at what this meant for um, oppressed peoples in the United States, for uh, especially black workers, but also uh, Mexicano and Chicano workers, and also Asian workers. And here... He tries to make, I think, a pretty complex argument. I'll give him props for that. But he basically argues like in a historically determinist sort of developmentalist way, something I wondered in the beginning of the book if he would do, and he does do it, with the movement from 19th century craft, skilled craft production and AFL unionism into the 20th century with semi-skilled industrial um, uh, factory production that the basis for the old settler arrangement of having the best jobs be white man's work and have the best wages and unions be for white workers, right? Now, as that system degrades, uh, the New Deal arises and, uh, and as an expression of the fact that black workers could no longer be fully excluded and kicked out of these jobs and those jobs taken by uh, settler workers, right? America Kukukens. But instead, the New Deal order had to integrate them in some sort of way, if only because of their essential, uh, because of how essential they were within the regime of uh, monopoly capital, as he calls it in the Leninist way, by like mass production, basically Fordism. So settlerism, right? You would think that with the integration under the CIO, imperfect, but real integration of black workers within the industrial unions of the CIO, that settlerism was dead, right? That there's like an integration. But then Sakai says, aha, but you don't realize the integration of that black working class into the settler state was actually the new means of subjugation that did the same thing that the exclusion did. It just did it on a higher form in like a Hegelian sort of sublation of it. So it's an interesting and, and like Hegelian argument for why, for where uh, black workers uh, fit into the New Deal paradigm. I wonder what you think about his thesis there. Well, I think a, a crucial part of this thesis, and this was true in previous chapters too, are, are certain details and anecdotes. One is that uh, he, he quotes this story from a communist CIO organizer who met with some black auto workers and they all signed up. And he says, well, that's very interesting that they all signed up because very few of them participated in this sit-down strike in, in reality. And the second part is the concept of non-interchangeability, um, yeah. which is a new term to me, um, not being a, a, a big scholar of labor history, but it, it seems to be that the integration of black workers into the CIO was internally segregated um, in a way that he compares to Jim Crow, a Jim Crow labor contract. Um, mm -hmm. what, what do you think about that? Um, I think there's an inch. I think it's an interesting point. I think that this is a way to get to like the insufficiency of integration in the 1930s in the United States labor movement, which is real. You know, he puts a very fine point on, I think, what was a minority position among black workers from what I've read of uh, towards the CIO, which is this sense that like it was just like a white 
a settlers or a white person's union and that black workers, if integrated into the CIO framework, would have no voice. And as you said, uh, would be stuck in their um, in the shittiest jobs, like the most backbreaking and lowest paid jobs. Janitors, for example, while white Janitors, people worked they on needed- the floor. Right. Yeah. In production, they they had to be doing um, painting of like the auto bodies, which is really dirty and dangerous. They had to be the ones working in foundries, you know, and this is certainly true. You know, like the historically through the 1930s to the 1970s, when black workers get in, they start at the lowest rung and often remain in the lowest rung uh, of industrial production. So you could see that as an element of um, prejudice, which when he outlines all the hate strikes that go on uh, against the integration of black workers, there's certainly prejudice at work there. Uh, You could talk about it in terms of the insufficient leadership of the CIO, which he claims, and I think this is true, vacillates back and forth about whether there should be integration and interchangeability uh, or whether uh, like segregated locals within larger unions are okay. And um, I think my impression of that always was that these, this was like, these were various different opportunistic sort of practical arrangements dealing with a large, like largely racist white workforce and Southern European workforce, uh, but trying to bring in black workers to the extent that a, they don't scab, right? Because, Capital had been really good about using them for that. Uh, and B, to like increase the bargaining position of the union under different circumstances. So in Atlanta, he points out, there's an all-white uh, General Motors plant, which is organized but stays all-white. That's in Atlanta. But then, you know, up north, <laughs> there are uh, whole um, factories where something like 40% of the workers are black by the end of the second world war, which shows, I think the, the, diff, the different sort of like geographical and spatial diffusion of like, of Jim Crow sort of race uh, segregation that works its way into the CIO movement, because this is American society that they're dealing with. And you could say that the, the CIO leadership, the, the militants, uh, turned bureaucrats who end up um, becoming the real power bro- real power brokers within the New Deal did insufficient work to even that terrain. And I think that's very, very much true. What, Nis- what Sakai wants to do is to paint them as like merely like cynical and usurpers and endowed with a settler mindset that... Um, you know, led to the unions being uh, de facto segregated, despite the ideas of uh, of integration that were floating around in the CIO. Ultimately, and then in my mind, like thirdly, Sakai does is really good, except in like a couple chapters before when he talked about like the the unity between set, the settler bourgeoisie and the settler working class. Um, he's really good at completely um, discounting the ability of capital uh, to create not just the detailed division of labor within a particular shop, but to also, you know, with the technical composition and its control more and more over the 1930s of the shop floor to be the one that ultimately does the hiring. So a lot of the blame gets put upon union leadership for this when ultimately it was capital that decided who worked. He does mention that black workers were used, were not hired individually. They were hired in groups, right? Typically by capital. But I mean, that could just as be the reasons for that he sees as like keeping the dangerous black workers, you know, 
as like a as like a little side group, you know, as from the larger whole. When it could instead be, you know, what the available labor pools were, especially as the war picks up. There could be a lot of factors to it, but ultimately, it is capital, and not just settler capital, capital as capital, which is in charge of the labor process and the hiring. By and large. Sure. And, and also the capitalist or self-interest of black workers and black communities. And this is something that did really bother me about this chapter that I alluded to before, is that Sakai, to the extent that he acknowledges the interest of, of black people in, in integrating during the CIO or, or what have you, he, he argues that they've been misled by church groups, community groups, politicians, labor leaders, who told them that if they take these janitorial jobs, these foundry jobs, that they, they're segregated within the factory, but over time this will improve the status of black people, maybe for their children. Maybe their children will get the better job. Maybe they can uh, afford to put their children through college, for example. You know, a lot of these black workers and white workers as well are from the South. They've moved to the North mm-hmm. looking for these jobs. And so they came to take these shitty positions in a racist factory. And it's very easy for us to say now that this experiment in integrating black people into a American middle class was a failure. But in reality, there are mixed results. And it's, yeah, it it can't really, you know, if we like compare the the situation of, uh, let's say the African nation in the United States to the uh, Palestinian nation in Israel, we mm. can't uh, draw the same conclusion. Yeah, if you, if you see two things. Two things on that, right? He blames settlerism for the collusion and class compromise uh, with empire uh, within the New Deal. He blames settlerism, but as always, you know, I'm looking across the advanced capitalist world at that time, including Europe, and a lot of settler colonial nations. In fact, almost all of them went through the same process that the United States went with an integration of like cowed uh, labor unions into like a social compact with capital as mediated by the state. Like he mentions that Mussolini does the same thing. Well, yeah, you know, Hitler does the same it thing. It happens too. everywhere and, in the world at the same time by different yeah. leaders and different means. And it's correct right, to compare so, the new deal to a, a fascist program, but it's also correct to compare Peronism or uh, Arbenz in Guatemala or, you know, just, but generally, yeah, a lot of progress is made economically, industrially, and socially uh, during this time frame that in some places expresses itself as fascism and some places expresses itself as a kind of workerism, a liberal workerism, yeah. a socialist workerism. And, he's, and so he's, he's fundamentally right. And I think that we, we all agree about this sort of homology between how this develops, as you just said. But the point is, is that if it's happening in the capitalist core all over the place at the same time, with very similar mechanisms, but some of the nations that it's happening in are settler colonial, but many of them are not settler colonial, you know, at least in the way their internal labor structure is set up, then that's damning for his argument, right? Because the settlerism isn't the mechanism, perhaps it's a way in which that's expressed, but he blames the settler, the the settler state, the settler society for that. And I've Call, I've dinged him on this before, and I, and I do it again right here. Importantly, though, too, you brought up the black bourgeoisie, uh, the black intelligentsia within the AACP, um, the black church leaders and petty bourgeoisie in general here. Sakai wants to argue that the African nation 
which he the proletarians, right, were undermined and fooled and tricked by this other class, right, by this uh, by this black um, semi ruling class, right. Um, well, I got news for you, bro. What is the nation? What is the nation? What has the nation been since the late 18th and uh, early 19th century is it has been a, cl- a cross-class historical project. It's been, the nation is a thing, is not the only thing, but a thing which unites the petty bourgeoisie, the haute bourgeoisie dominating over the working class. So you can't claim like, oh, well, they they fooled the African nation into thinking that their interests were in quietude and their interests were just working within the system and their interests were to, to do Garveyism or Booker T. Washington shit. If you're going to claim that they're, that this nation, right, quote unquote, within your book is this historical body, this living body that exists through history and that its realization is the project of freedom, is the building of socialism, essentially. You can't then say that it was mere foolery that one um, one class stratum within this nation, as you, as you call it, begins to take domination and has its own particular interest within the quote-unquote nation, right? He like, they're, they're fundamentally, when he's talking about these dynamics between like a, a black semi-ruling class and the, the large, massive black proletariat, you know, all of a sudden now, the nation doesn't become quite a simple thing. You can't make such a distinction, easy distinction between settlers and non-settlers. In fact, the black bourgeoisie is acting like settlers. Well, why are they doing that? Well, maybe, I don't know. It's because the... The, the the backs and forths and the workings out of social class might be more important than your settler's thesis. And uh, this is something that I, I think we'll talk about in a future episode when we get to the 60s and 70s, but uh, Sakai's black nationalist influences in, in the 60s make a pretty similar point, which is a moment in the 50s and 60s where black communists start looking again at the, the historical debate between Du Bois and Washington and say, why is it wrong for black people to want to become capitalists? Mm. Um, white people can become capitalists. White people uh, have aspirations of being petty bourgeois and bourgeois. And why should black people not strive for the same thing? Because they live in the same world as white people. And so this, this strain of black nationalism, which diverges from the left uh, and Sakai... Which is Clarence Thomas's exactly. black nationalism. Um, right. And, and Sakai obviously wants to keep this strain within the left. He's a Maoist. He's a Marxist. But the way Sakai talks about the black nation versus the way the nation of Islam does, um, you, you see that a lot of the same conceptions of the black nation are tightly bound up with economic improvement in the mold of Booker T. Washington and they're not wrong to talk that way. Um, obviously, it becomes deeply deformed in the form of the Clarence Thomas's kind of politics, and that's not always the case. But it's another example of black liberation struggle looking at its options, as black people have always done throughout even the history that's outlined in Settlers. Like one of the most beautiful parts about Settlers that we've read so far is the stories of uh, slaves running towards the British lines, for example, mm-hmm. gaining their freedom mm-hmm. that way and fighting against 
the United States fighting against uh, the Continental Army, going through a similar process in the, the Civil War. There is something very beautiful in the way black people act in their self-interest. And he doesn't see that beauty here in this chapter. Uh, but right. key to why he feels this way is explained in the next chapter. When we, Before uh, we move on, and, and that's all good stuff. Before we move on, his solution, because we always have to, as we talked about with um, Gaza earlier, you always have to look at what the practical politics are that follows from this. Right, that follows from his analysis of the CIO in the 1930s. And his analysis shows, takes him to the point where he not only celebrates scabbing on the part of uh, black workers against uh, the, a, uh, the UAW in uh, the 1937 sit-down strike, saying that it wasn't their fight and it wasn't their struggle, and they were right to not take the picket line and, and keep working. But also he, it essentially leads him to argue for segregated, um, segregated unions. Mm. And he so made, he makes a similar argu- argument in the last chapter, the previous chapters we discussed too. Yeah. So that's an interesting, I mean, there are hate strikes going on. There's discrimination going on. There's like a structural way in which black workers are constantly given the worst work and are meant to stay there essentially, except when they fight. And they were fighting, you know, for interchangeability and they were fighting for rights within the CIO because, as you said earlier, they believed in this project by and large. Right. Um, what an alternate history then is what if they form segregated like all black unions? I mean, that is where Sakai wishes they had gone at that point in time. We can ask ourselves why that didn't happen on mass. Right. But that, that brings the question of like if the point of settlers is to unearth this history or at least create a polemic out of cherry picked bits of history and make like a really compelling story behind it. If it leads us to the fact that we should have like, or to the situation where we should be having Jim Crow unions. And that's a positive thing because uh, black workers, oppressed workers can only fight for their own national struggle, you know, because they've been so fucked over by the settler colonialists. Now you're in a situation where you're deepening Jim Crow, presumably to get past it, or at least to be revolutionary. And is that a road that we want to go down? Can we follow Sakai down that, that path towards uh, segregated unions? This question is kind of how I feel about the whole, the whole book, which is that for our purposes as white people, as settlers, there, it doesn't do us much good to think that way. Because, of course, uh, when we work with non-white people, with immigrants, with black people, we don't want them to struggle separately. Um, and we understand, even you know, even if we don't have internationalist or anti-racist politics, if we're, at, if we're in a class struggle, we need everyone united. That's how we win. So white mm-hmm. people have always needed uh, black workers, non-white workers. Um, the question is, you know, for us, do we need do we need them to as a like buttress of our privilege as like a you know uh, sort of like as a safety net for when um, when we're losing the class war we lose less than black people or do we understand that to really win we have to destroy white supremacy and the only way we can do that is with black people and theoretically uh, uh, black people need white people too because they are a mm. small minority. Uh, uh, what twenty percent of the public? Seventeen, 17? I think. So this is sort of the kind of demographic, 
dead end of this kind of politics, at least in terms of the United States, um, is, I mean, I, I guess unless you you say that all of the non-white nations can unite and uh, take down white people. Uh, mm. But I don't, the way whiteness works, that can't really happen because Latino people are integrated into whiteness. Asian people are integrated into whiteness. Even Native Americans are integrated into whiteness in a way that black people just aren't. So for the, uh, the black nation to become autonomous, they would have to, launch some sort of yeah they would have to secede in some way and mm. i don't blame black people for operating autonomously for becoming black capitalists uh for becoming black nationalists i will i won't judge black people for making political decisions that's against my political outlook because they're trying to solve problems that are much different than ours yeah, uh, yeah. but i can't in, support in those politics I, I i can't say like you know, if if I'm in a class struggle, I can't say white people operate autonomously, black people operate autonomously, because that's not in our self interest. Yeah, that's how yeah, we and lose. It's not in our uh, in our political vision either. So um, I think that's all very very well said. Um, I think we, I think chapter seven on the CIO was like a really fruitful one for trying to get like understand where these politics go, you know? And then like, I think you did a good job too of like thinking about how this, this might play out nowadays uh, and understanding the stakes of, you know, of the struggle. Uh, chapter eight, imperialist war and the new American order. Uh, what'd you think of this one? This is about the second world war. Yeah. And it's a, it's really a take on the second world war that I haven't read before. It's very similar in a sense to those earlier chapters talking about the, pre-United States and Revolutionary War, where he makes the argument that colonized and repressed people around the world, by and large, did not uh, buy the pretenses of World War II, that it was an anti-fascist war, that it was, uh, you know, democracy versus fascism. He makes the argument that black people saw the war and, like, weren't Nazis, but didn't really have an interest in the United States winning, necessarily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the... Uh I mean, that's overblown as usual, right? Um, I think that if you look, as I understand the history by and large, the conception was a double victory, right? It was uh, for like at least the black intellectuals, um, you know, within the middle class and then filtering down to the, um, to the black working class, which went to go fight abroad. And there were some, there were plenty. Um, the conception was a victory against um, oppression and racism abroad against the Nazis and then bringing that victory home. And the Second World War actually, and Sakai mentions in a really backhanded way, becomes a vehicle very, I mean, insufficient, obviously, and only really small starts for, especially within war production, um, the federal government to start demanding, the New Deal uh, government to start demanding desegregation of, um, of workplaces and uh, factories. So I think still, though, that, that Sakai does put a good point on what... Um, you know, the stakes actually were for like the vast majority of the people in the world. And he's got this fucking banger on page 211. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, this is about uh, a Macy's department store that had a sale on uh, Pearl Harbor Day, which produced the most profitable business day ever. 
1944. He says, once again, the exceptional life of settler America was renewed by war and conquest. This is the mechanism within each American cycle of internal conflict and reform. The New Deal was Hiroshima and Nagasaki as well. Consumeristic America was erected on top of the 60 million deaths of World War II. At a boy, Jay Sakai. I mean, that's a fucking banger right there. And it's true, you know? Yeah, and then uh, that leads into this George Jackson quote. Um, In the U.S., World War II was the principal cause of the total breakdown of the working class movement and its revolutionary consciousness. Resistance to the war would have seemed like simple common sense. If Stalin gave the order to support the U.S. war effort, he was a fool. In any case, the old vanguard support should have been for the people's struggle in, inside the United States. And so for the rest of the chapter, Sakai talks about what World War II looks like domestically. And he makes yeah. the argument that the hate strikes, that the uh, zoot suit riots and the attacks mm-hmm. on uh, Chicano people and black people and Asian people in California. And Puerto Rican and Port- nationals. Yeah, yeah. and uh, you know, the, uh, the attention paid to Puerto Rico is, is very good here as well. That this was part mm-hmm. of the U.S. war effort. This was the war at home. What kind of argument do you think he's making there? Why Why is it important to him that he highlights GIs off-duty participating in race riots and workers participating in hate strikes as an element of World War II equal to uh, you know the European theater of war, for example? Yeah, I mean, he, he wants to puncture the myth. And he says that directly in this chapter, that uh, this was the good war. You know, this is still the war that everybody in the United States will call the good war. It's, you know, we have our Band of Brothers series that we watch about. It's Saving Private Ryan. The uh, evil of fascism and Hitler is self-evident to all of us. And so obviously, too, for a lot of people on the left, the alliance between the United States and the USSR, right, within this sort of New Deal World War II order is also a step forward. So like... Americans understand World War II in a very particular way as a fight for freedom. And then what Sakai wants to do is to show it's not actually a fight for freedom for the oppressed peoples of the world who are kind of uh, toys to be batted around by the great powers, right? And the way that you see that, according to him, is the way in which the fight for freedom was, a, was very much uh, in the, um, the wellspring for unfreedom at home for other peoples. So he makes an analogy between those two because he wants to say that actually the war against fascism was by and large um, an inter-imperialist war and one that the United States empire fought for self-interested reasons, that the settler colony at home spread its prosperity abroad at the point of a gun. And uh, so you can see the way that the, the actual essence of what that war was by the way um, the oppressed peoples were treated. 